0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: A year ago, on March 11th, 2020, the head of the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 19 to be, be a pandemic.
2: Characterized as a pandemic.
1: 12 months on, the spread continues. More than 115 million people have been infected globally, and over 2.5 million have died. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, the lessons learned from COVID-19.
3: It's fascinating. We are watching a brand new virus become one of those established diseases. How have pandemics of the past shaped the society of today?
4: The battle against COVID-19 in India comes under a piece of legislation of 1897, which was invoked to combat the plague.
1: And how to make the next normal a better normal. We need to think about
5: our attitude towards what I would call respiratory hygiene. Will we all be much more aware of things like mask wearing and when we're sick, staying home, all those things.
1: COVID-19 started as an epidemic in or around Wuhan, China in December 2019. Since then, the disease has torn through countries around the world. Today, restrictions on business and movement are still in place in much of the world. The year has been one of tragedy and often failed leadership. But it has also been a time of learning and a revitalization of scientific working. Slaveya Chenkova is the Economist healthcare correspondent. Hello, Slaveya. Hi, Ken. Take me back to March 2020. We'd watched China start to deal with the virus, and we also saw it spread across Asia and into Europe. But in lots of places, particularly in the West, we thought we had really robust systems for a pandemic, but it seemed like the world was completely unprepared.
3: Well, I'm not sure I would say that exactly. I mean, the world was prepared in some ways. We had SARS and Zika as red flags of what could happen Bill Gates and many others had been warning for years about a pandemic like what we have now. And many countries had done some level of planning and preparation for this, notably in East Asia, the countries that were really shaken by the original SARS virus. And countries like America and Britain had also done quite a bit of planning for a flu pandemic, a very contagious and very deadly flu virus, deadly to people of all ages. So a bit like the virus in the movie Contagion, which I must say got very favorable reviews back at the time by epidemiologists.
1: Now, many of the countries that took strong steps against the initial outbreak are not vaccinating as quickly as other countries like Britain and America. Should we be concerned by that?
3: I don't know if we should be concerned necessarily. I mean, they're in a good spot because they don't have an epidemic going on right now. But it just means that if they're not vaccinating, they just have to be in this kind of permanent state of closed borders until they vaccinate, (laughs) because if they let go, then cases are just going to flood in from abroad because the world is not vaccinated. So I would say this is kind of stage two of managing the pandemic controlling the virus by vaccinating quickly. The UK has certainly been a good model, unlike earlier in the pandemic. Uh, Israel is another good example. Of course, it's a very small country. But we are seeing countries like Chile that have really, really taken seriously the task of vaccinating quickly. And they will be able to lift their lockdowns much, much faster than countries around Europe, which have barely vaccinated 5 or 6% of people. When we have this kind of quilt (laughs) of countries with various vaccination rates, various variants, various degrees of openness and interconnectedness to the rest of the world. So I really don't know what the second half of this year is going to look like.
1: Is there one country that you'd single out as having done such a good performance that the rest of the world should look at and try to emulate?
3: Well, so far, we we haven't seen any one country that really stands out from the very beginning. Some countries have been better earlier. You know, Germany was quite a star in Europe in controlling the pandemic from the very beginning. Now it's actually doing very badly on vaccination. Countries in East Asia have also done very well in controlling the pandemic. They're hardly vaccinating. Uh, Some of them have not really started yet. And then you have countries like America or Britain, which have had a very high death rate from COVID, but are among the countries that are leading the way on vaccinations. So when this is all done and dusted, and someone sits down to write up the lessons learned, it will be a bit of picking various countries and seeing who did best which part, and then drawing up the playbook of how you do it in the future but it won't be any one country that is really an example for all all of these things.
1: Do you think that COVID-19 is going to be eradicated or that it will always be circulating seasonally?
3: I think anyone who tells you that COVID is going to be eradicated at this point, they're pretty delusional, I would say. It's very clear that this virus is here to stay. We just have to see how it evolves. It's a fascinating, fascinating time for scientists, we are watching a brand new virus become one of those established diseases that will be with us forever. But we have vaccines, uh, we'll have some drugs, we know how to treat it, we know how it spreads, how to limit outbreaks when they occur. We are doing that with the flu every year. So even if it comes to having seasonal COVID shots, we know how to do that. So I think that's kind of what it's starting to look like. We'll have tracking around the world to see what variants are emerging so that the vaccines can be tweaked accordingly. So very much like what we do with the seasonal flu.
1: Slavea, have we learned from our mistakes? Is the world better prepared for another pandemic?
3: I would hope so, Ken. This has been absolutely fascinating time for me as a healthcare journalist, you know, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity really to be covering this, or I would hope it is a once in a lifetime. But if another one comes along, I do think the world is better prepared to deal with it.
1: That is a small degree of comfort. Slavea, thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Ken.
1: You can hear more from Slavea on The Economist podcast, The Jab. This week, the team explores how the clinical trials for vaccines work. Check out The Jab on your podcast app. When we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, our lives may be profoundly different, but pathogens have long shaped the modern world. Robert Guest, The Economist, foreign editor, has been investigating.
2: The 19th and early 20th centuries were a time of industrial revolution and huge technological progress. But humankind in those days was still vulnerable to terrible diseases, pandemics like cholera, Plague and influenza.
4: All three pandemics collectively it killed over 70 million people, but of those 70 million people who died, over 40 million died in India. Chinmay Tumbe is a professor
2: of economics at the Indian Institute of Management in Ahmedabad. He's the author of a new book, The Age of Pandemics How They Shaped India and the World. Professor Tumbe's exploration begins in 1817 when an outbreak of cholera caused a pandemic. Leading to an estimated 19 million deaths
4: worldwide. Cholera is a disease caused by a bacteria. It is a waterborne disease, but initial years people did not know that it was waterborne. They attributed it to air.
2: Cholera caused diarrhea, vomiting, dehydration, sunken eyes, and changes in the colour of the skin, often to blue. Professor Tumbe
4: argues that cholera pandemics actually made the world less stable. The classic example is the 1857 uprising in India. There are studies which show that it's only in those towns in which cholera appeared that these anxieties were heightened, and hence caused to a greater sort of sense of resentment uh, against the British or the East India Company at that point. And this caught on across North India, and towns which had more cholera outbreaks saw more mutinies. In this case, the political revolution petered out. The British got back control of the situation, but definitely there was a spark of a major revolt.
2: While cholera epidemics were ongoing, India and the rest of the world were also faced with a pandemic of plague. Plague is a bacterial infection and can cause a variety of symptoms, including the sudden onset of fever, headache, chills and weakness. Skin and other tissues
4: could turn black
2: and die, especially on the fingers, toes and nose
4: it kind of spreads through rats and fleas. And this was not known in the 1890s. It was really known only between 1905 and 1910 when they proved this theory between rats carrying plague and a rat flea which is sitting on these rats, biting human beings and then transmitting plague. And so plague really rips through the Indian subcontinent between about 1901 and 1910. The outbreak of plague caused panic
2: in Europe as people had a historical memory of the Black Death. That was a plague pandemic that arrived in Europe on ships, possibly from Asia in the mid-1300s, and it went on to kill almost a third of Europe's population. The 19th century outbreak of plague was nowhere near that bad in Europe, but it was pretty
4: awful in Asia. Of the roughly 13 million deaths between 1894 and 1920, about 12 million of those 13 million deaths happened in India alone. And so this is an interesting pandemic because... It's often forgotten in European history because it was not as deadly for Europe as the Black Death. But it was deadly for India, it was deadly for China, and some parts of Asia.
2: In the end, it was not human
4: intervention that ended this plague pandemic. The most accepted theory today is it dies out because of herd immunity. And not so much because of herd immunity among humans, but herd immunity among rats against plague. And that's the classic theory as to explain why plague emerges in cycles spanning different centuries because there's an equilibrium between the rodents and this Yersinia pestis bacteria. And people argue that by 1920s, the rodents in many parts of the world had achieved herd immunity. Once scientists
2: developed treatments like antibiotics from the 1930s, plague and cholera epidemics
4: gradually petered out. Because plague is essentially a bacteria-based disease, antibiotics are very powerful. And that is why even if you get plague today, it is not as lethal. So cholera and plague, As Joshua Lederberg, a Nobel Prize-winning molecule biologist, once said, we have some good knowledge of bacterial infections, but we're still a bit clueless about viruses. And I think that's why cholera and plague are no longer seen to be as scary as they once were, because we know how to deal with them. Influenza, or flu, is the disease caused
2: by a group of viruses that crop up frequently. And some of the strains of which have pandemic potential. When the COVID-19 pandemic broke out, lots of people compared it to the great flu pandemic of over a century ago. This pandemic was caused by an H1N1 virus with genes probably came from birds. It's estimated there were around 50 million deaths. By comparison, in the first year of COVID-19, it caused fewer than 3 million deaths the 1918-19 flu pandemic was particularly devastating for
4: India. A lot of collective memory is connected with the World War I rather than the pandemic. In India, it's remarkable. 20 million people died. There are more people who died by the flu pandemic in India alone than all the global battle casualties of World War I. It's a striking statistic. Professor Tumbe
2: argues that the flu pandemic a century ago created conditions that helped
4: foster the Indian independence movement led by Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi loses a family member to the flu. And it's not a coincidence that in Feb 1919, Gandhi gets this energy to launch a tirade against laws. But the subtext around that is this mass misery of deaths. And then, you know, his newsletter is talking about these deaths and saying, you know, people are dying, nothing is happening, and the state is not showing enough empathy.
2: In April 1919, India was racked by protests against British rule. One of those protests was in the gardens of the Golden Temple in Amritsar in Punjab.
4: In that meeting, a British officer opens fire on this peaceful assembly of people, saying this is unlawful assembly of people, and hundreds of people are massacred. And it's kind of a very important moment of the Indian freedom movement. And yet I would say that you can't understand that particular event without understanding what happened the months going into that event. And so that is why it forms a very important subtext. And yet all of us in India know about this particular tragedy rather than the greater tragedy of the flu pandemic in the sense that the difference between the two is that there's a clearly identifiable enemy, so to speak, in one. Whereas in the flu pandemic, who do you blame? And I think that is why epidemics often fall through the cracks of history.
2: If there's one thing that the study of the history of pandemics tells us, it's that pandemics can change history. They can spark social movements and revolutions. They can change the economic situation in countries. And they can boost technology as people scramble to find ways of dealing with the disease. But they're also incredibly unpredictable.
1: Our thanks to Professor Chinmei Tumbei and Robert Guest. On Babbage in December 2020, Robert investigated the impact that malaria, the deadliest pandemic ever, has had on humanity, from defending ancient Rome to being used as a weapon in the Second World War. Search for The Parasites in the Pandemic wherever you listen. Coming up, what to expect from a
0: post-pandemic world. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
1: One byproduct of the pandemic is that it has forced people to reconsider their old way of life, whether it is travel, socializing, or working. COVID-19 presents a chance for a reset in many areas of society. But capitalising on this opportunity won't be easy. So how can we create better institutions and practices in the post-pandemic world?
5: This is a really difficult question, isn't it? Because so many different countries have different epidemics.
1: Dame Anne Johnson is Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at University College London. She's also President of the UK Academy of Medical Sciences.
5: All epidemics, all pandemics, in a sense, are driven in part by the changing social circumstances in society and globally. And they tend to lead to change as well going forward. So we have to think much more broadly about our global preparedness for the emergence of new infectious diseases and our ability to act collectively at source to minimise the damage from them to have good surveillance system and very good public health systems in all our countries able to respond resiliently. And that means a great deal more, I think, sharing of resources and knowledge and the ability for this to play out into communities than we have currently.
1: As president of the Academy of Medical Sciences, you were on the advisory group preparing the UK for the winter of 2021. But what can we expect next winter?
5: Well, I think all of us have learned that it's very difficult to make predictions in this pandemic. But I think going into next winter, because a high fraction of the population will likely be vaccinated, but there will be still significant numbers of susceptibles. So I think it's perfectly possible that we will see a further but probably smaller resurgence of transmission. But we also have to think about the transmission of other respiratory virus infections like flu and RSV. We've had hardly any flu occurring this year, and that will diminish immunity to those viruses in the population, and they may well recur at a higher rate next winter, assuming that, of course, we are under lower restrictions next winter.
1: Now, the vaccination programmes that we're doing, of course, are critical, What is it that we're not doing but should be doing?
5: Well, I think one thing that we need to be doing is strengthening the ability of us to have really global surveillance systems. That means that we have rapid sharing of data and capability internationally as infections emerge. I mean, you've seen how important early availability of sequencing data was in order to get an understanding of this virus to get tests out around the world. And then in addition to that, we need the response capability at the level of communities. I mean, you see how important, for example, in the Ebola pandemic, the local community response was in controlling epidemics. But very often, public health systems are very limited and eroded. And we need surveillance, which is available not just for this Infection because there will be others that come. It's that generalized capability and resilience that we have to build. And that's quite difficult because that means you need sort of spare surge capacity in the system.
1: Now, you've been a great proponent of reframing the climate around public health. Tell me more about that.
5: Well, I think if you look back historically, our health is determined by so many other elements, the education we have, our incomes, the air we breathe, the food we eat, the fiscal policies that are around us, the amount of security we have in our lives. All these things frame our health. If you go back to the 19th century, it wasn't so much doctors as engineers who improved our health through the provision of sanitation, clean water and good housing. I think COVID-19 has made us sit up and realise that an infectious disease is, in a sense, a force of nature that we cannot easily control. We're used to technological solutions, things that we can solve. And here is something which has gone around the world and essentially changed, at least for this year, fundamentally so many aspects of people's lives. And that, I think, underlines some of our vulnerabilities. And if you think about the the way we live together in very crowded megacities, the closer links there are between animal communities and human communities, our interlinkedness, our travel and the environmental degradation around us. Now, you can't make necessarily a direct link, but you can think about all those things being a facilitator of the very rapid transmission of infections around the world. And so moving forward, if we understand those, we also have to think about how we build back to build more resilience into the system and take account of these very big environmental and economic drivers. But I think front of all those, in my mind, is the environmental degradation that's going on alongside global heating.
1: Often in responding to COVID-19, we think about the global response. What about the more local response?
5: Well, I think this is one of the things we must learn, at least in the UK, that COVID struck communities very unequally and and communities have had different responses. So if you really want to build a resilient response, that's got to be done with communities, with different BAME communities, for example, with the engagement of young people, with the engagement of local public health agencies who know their communities. But that should be obviously linked into the national response to control the epidemic and, and be provided with those resources.
1: For a year, there's been talk of a, quote-unquote, new normal or the next normal. But what will that look like?
5: One makes any predictions very hesitantly because I think so many things are going to be so different in different countries. In some countries, you've got very low rates of infection and high levels of control. If we are successful in the trajectory that we're on, then I think there are a number of things that more broadly may change. And we need to think about our attitude towards what I would call respiratory hygiene. Will we all, moving forward, as many countries in Southeast Asia have been used to for some time, be much more aware of things like mask wearing and when we're sick, staying home when we're sick, all those things? Will we begin to move away from the density of cities and recognise that there are new ways of working, working from home and so on? Will we reduce our travel that we do for work because we're working on Zoom and so on and so forth. What will we do in care homes and hospitals to ensure that we get much better in terms of infection control, in the way we build buildings, in the way we organise staff to reduce transmission? Will we shop differently? Will city centres look different? I mean, I think these are all very big questions moving forward.
1: Professor Johnson, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Babbage. The producers are the amazing Jason Hoskin and Abbe Soye Ashendairo. The editor is Sandra Shmueli. And for lots more analysis this week with a report into vaccine passports, subscribe to The Economist. To get a special subscription offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. I'm Kenneth Kukia, and in London, this is The Economist.